Welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. I'm Darby Toth, a technical field services representative with Western United Dairies. And I'm Melissa Lima, the North Coast and Organic Field Services Rep with Western United Dairies. Welcome back to the show, everybody. How's it going, Darby? It's going pretty well. You know, normally we do our uh, weather report, but I have to admit for sound quality, I am uh, recording in the closet. So I don't quite have the view of the weather that uh, I usually do in the office. Oh, funny. I, I don't even know what the weather is today. So it's kind of hazy. We'll say that. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's just a funny, a funny week. Um, we're doing We're switching things up a little bit on the podcast too. So I think we can, we'll skip over the rest of the weather report. Um, today we're doing our first sponsored episode, Darby, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, it was really great. We got to sit down with um, PG&E and they shared a lot of information and not just about one topic. I feel like we talked about quite a few different things that I think are going to be um, pretty interesting to a lot of our producers. Absolutely. It's, it's a super information-packed episode. We had Chris from the gas operations team and Christine from the ag team. And um, boy, we're going to be doing these uh, sponsored episodes periodically as part of our WUD sponsorship package. And I think it's a great way to connect our audience with a super dense amount of information about different programs and opportunities that they have in the industry. So that being said, we won't hold you guys off too long from that segment. Um, we'll have Annie for a market update. Paul Souza joins us today. Um, Paul and I sat down and chatted about an important bulletin on mortality disposal. Um, there's some complications and things we want to make sure producers are aware of in light of last week's intense heat wave that, that caused some extra mortalities and maybe a lag in the pickup time. And then of course, um, We'll have our PG&E chat with Chris D. Giovanni and Christine Forrester. Yeah, and as we kind of kick things off here, let's uh, head over to Annie, who's going to give us a market update and an update on the producer review board meeting that happened earlier this week. Thanks, Melissa and Darby. Before I jump into the market update, I thought it would be good to discuss the producer review board meeting that occurred on August 27th. It was um, your typical producer review board where there's agenda items and the board discusses some of that. Before there was discussion, CDFA presented updates on all things quota that we've been updating you in this podcast. So the lawsuit and where that was at and, you know, the chapter 3.5 hearing. CDFA also discussed their fund for quota. Um, and so as, as most of you know, CDFA collects the amounts of assessments and ensures that there's enough money to pay out all quota holders. And so they provide an update on that as well. They expect that the fund will go down a little bit as milk production gets hit with uh, the heat this summer, but they were still in um, good shape to keep uh, moving forward with paying quota holders. So that, that was uh, pretty straightforward. Um, in terms of motions and votes, there was two main ones. First, um, there was a motion to deny the UDFC petition. So if you recall, United Dairy Families of California submitted a petition that was validated by CDFA, which means that goes to the PRE uh, for a recommendation to the secretary whether to hold a hearing or referendum or not. And so there was a motion to uh, deny that petition that did not pass. It was followed by a motion to... Um, recommend to the secretary that this petition goes through the formal hearing process and that motion passed. And so this is what uh, should happen next is there will be a hearing on the UDFC petition, which as a reminder was a sunset on quota. So it would expire in 2025 and also a change uh, to the RQAs, the regional quota adjusters, which make the payment that quota holders receive vary by county location. Basically, that would go away and everybody would receive the value at Tulare, which is $1.43. And so some areas that would mean no change in quota payments for quota holders. Some others that would mean a slightly lower payment. Um, and this is almost a three cent reduction on the assessment for everybody else. So by paying quota holders slightly less, that means the assessment also would go down slightly. So that's it for the PRB meeting. We'll keep you posted when we have, you know, hearing dates and details on the next steps. 
Um, the market updates, there's been a lot of decreases lately. So maybe I'll start with uh, one commodity that went up, the non-fat dry milk price. So the USDA price went up by 0.82 cents. So nothing too dramatic, but slowly but surely, we're kind of making our way towards CME prices, which um, were above a dollar this week. And so hopefully we can get to that with USDA prices as well. The cheese price movement was really large. Again, last week we talked of decreases in the 30 cent range. Now blocks were down 25 cents, barrels down 28 cents. Um, so blocks now stands at 203.96, still above $2. So that's still pretty good. And barrels at $1.82, uh, which is not um, which is not bad. Um, even with these losses, there's gonna be further declines probably next week, because CME prices dropped quite a bit lower than that in the past few weeks. The good news is it really looks like CME prices kind of overshot the decline and they started moving back up. So, you know, it's kind of been a wild ride. It's been bumpy. Um, we've had downs. We've had ups. Uh, this week, we had a, a CME block um, $1.87, which was the, you know, the highest uh, since the first week of August. So hopefully our USDA prices drop a little bit, but then settle without having to go, um, you know, as long as we've seen uh, just a few months ago. And so a little bit of stability um, would be welcomed on the cheese price. If we look at uh, cheese stocks, they continue to decline month to month, but they remained a little bit above last year. So up 2%. On the butter price, it dropped by 6.86 cents this week. We're now just under $1.50 per pound. There's just not been a lot of enthusiasm in butter markets since this price level really may be what we have around on the, the short term. CME butter prices have also been in that range. Uh, the price, you know, Wednesday was at a flat $1.50. If we look at USDA inventory data, there's not much optimism that comes out of there with stocks. You know, in July, we're still 13% above a year ago. Um, perhaps what's a little bit comforting about this um, that is not comforting about this is that the increase uh, from June to July. So if you look at uh, stocks moving from June to July, they were up 3%. Typically, June to July stocks are pretty steady. In fact, the past five years average was just negative uh, 0.9%. Now, butter consumption in U.S. was really strong in June. It was up 17% year over year. So it perhaps is what happened in helping to decrease stocks in June a little bit more than typical due to the strong U.S. consumption. So it'll be interesting to see what the data shows for July. Dry weight price, again, um, loyal to its slow trend, uh, lost 0.84 cents this week. So we're at 32 cents a pound. Um, there's not a whole lot of upbeat news out of the dry weight market, but there was a little bit of a um, undertones of optimism coming out of dairy market news with, um, you know, a report that domestic and international demands are stable to a bit livelier. So we'll hang on to that livelier because it, um, it sounds better than a lot of other stuff in the markets these days. So this concludes the market update for this week. As usual, any questions, uh, feel free to reach out to Annie at WDairies.com. And also, we are um, we're trying to gather some information. There's some USDA assistance program out there, um, you know, that cover mostly losses of animals due to you know extreme heat or wildfires that um, producers might be eligible to um, apply to. We posted that in the newsletter, uh, but it's at farmers.gov/recover/disaster-tool. You can plug in your information and see what kind of uh, program would apply to you. But in addition to that. We're trying to see if we can get more assistance for dairies on loss of milk production. So if you have direct evidence of how the heat or fires have affected you, uh, please feel free to email me and uh, we will keep working to help with um, those tough conditions out there. So until next week, thanks for listening. Back to you, Darby and Melissa. Hi, I'm Jessica with PG&E. 811 is a free service to keep our community safe. Before you do any digging, PG&E will mark your gas and electric lines so you don't hit them. Call 811 before you dig. To learn more, visit pg.com/safety. Thanks so much Annie for that market update and a roundup of the producer review board meeting this week. We are now joined by our guru of environmental affairs, Paul Souza. Thanks so much Paul for joining us today. Yeah, sure. 
we're glad to have you. Um, Paul, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of the, some of the things that happened last week as California experienced a record-breaking heat wave um, and what that means for dairies and their mortality issues. It's kind of, this is kind of a bulletin we weren't expecting to put in this week's episode, but there's some really important information producers should know. So I'll let you take it away. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and I think this is an opportunity. Uh, you and I were talking about, you know, what are we going to talk about on the podcast? And this is some very timely information. And so this is a good way to deliver uh, timely information to our members. Uh, so yeah, as you mentioned, you know, California experienced that heat wave last week and uh, caused some rendering plants to not be able to process all of the animals uh, for a couple of reasons. One of the rendering plants had a breakdown that caused like a 50% reduction in their capacity. And then also because carcasses are more difficult to process as they're more broken down and it slows down their process uh, because of the heat. So uh, it's created some issues that we've had to deal with. Uh, in working with CDFA, uh, Western United Dairies and other industry partners, the California Dairy Quality Assurance Program has developed an advisory uh, providing options to dairy producers if their renderer was not able to pick up all of the fallen animals. Uh, Western United Dairies uh, distributed that advisory to our members uh, in addition to CDQAP distributing it and uh, it would still be available if anybody doesn't have it. They can ask myself, Melissa or Darby uh, for a copy of that if uh, they wanted to know what that's about, uh, especially after today's podcast because I'm going to refer to it several times. Yeah, absolutely. And CDQAP has been an awesome partner in dealing with these issues. And I, I saw that come across my desk first thing Monday. They've really done a lot of work to distribute that. But just in case producers haven't seen it, um, we really appreciate the groundwork CDQAP did on this issue. Yeah, they have been just an incredible partner putting in a lot of work and they have a lot of expertise. And so they've really helped uh, make this a smoother process. The uh, state veterinarian with CDFA issued a quarantine notice, which allows uh, alternative options to rendering. Um, the options available on your farm, it's important to remember, um, you know, are spelled out in the CDQAP or the CDFA quarantine notice, but then also require approval by your local county. So that advisory uh, provided a prioritized list of the most favorable to least favorable options, according to the regulatory agencies, what they would like to see. Uh, and that information, that prioritization and information about how to achieve those uh, is included in that uh, CDQAP advisory. Okay, Paul, and can you maybe go over what those additional options are in case our members haven't seen that advisory yet? Sure. Uh, the preferred option uh, that's listed first is to go to landfill disposal. That gets the animals off of the dairy. They're out of your hair. Uh, they're done and taken care of. You don't need to worry about that anymore. Uh, the second option being temporary storage on farm in a compost pile. Uh, the issue with that is then, you know, there's things down the road. You've got a pile there with an animal in it that's decomposing uh, that has to be dealt with at some point in the future. Okay, so if um, a dairy somewhere in the Central Valley decided to go with the compost option or even a landfill option, is there any difference in what options are available to what dairies? Can all dairies just decide what's best for them or what's the deal there? Yeah, unfortunately not. You do need to look to your county. So the state veterinarian issues a quarantine notice, but then your local county determines what you can actually do. And some of those counties are not liking the on-farm composting. And so they're saying you have to go to a landfill. And so, um, you know, you may not have all those options available to you. You need to go by what your county says. And that information is included in the CDQAP advisory. Okay, so Paul, another question that comes up, um, this is an emergency declaration. It's to deal with a situation that was sort of unprecedented. We had 10 days above 110 degrees or 105 degrees. Um, so how long is this option in place? Is this just henceforth you're allowed to do this or are there some limitations? Yeah, that's important to clarify that. So these options are only available during the proclaimed emergency, and that ends on August 31st. Okay. And that, again, is the uh, CDFA's uh, state vet um, wrote a quarantine. And on it, the date, the last date that you can follow that is August 31st. So starting September 1st, all of these options uh, potentially go away. Okay. So... And, and, you know, a big reason for uh, wanting to be on the podcast, I think dairy producers have gotten used to these options, but uh, what is new here is that after all this was in place, this has kind of become routine, this 
happened back uh, earlier in the year also when there were some issues with some rendering plants. Uh, the water board for the first time decided that an application for a water quality permit for the management of disaster related wastes would be required for dairies using the on-farm on compost piles to temporarily store uh, carcasses. So unfortunately, this creates an additional permit for a dairy that's already covered under the dairy permit. Now they'd be covered under this um, waste, uh, emergency waste disposal permit and the dairy permit, at least temporarily under the uh, emergency waste disposal permit. And it requires that um, an application called the notice of intent be submitted within 30 days of putting carcasses in a pile and that those piles be managed uh, as prescribed in the permit. And then the filing of a notice of termination when the piles have been removed and everything's been cleaned up. Um, to me, this new requirement makes the landfill option clearly the best choice. You know, one, you landfill them, they're out of your hair, you're done with them, and then you avoid this additional regulatory burden with the water board. So this is, you know, the main reason I wanted to come on the podcast and remind our members that there are, uh, this is, you know, a brand new requirement just came up uh, last week at the very end of last week, like at 4.30 at 5 o'clock. Um, I mean, 4.30 on a Friday, the water board sent out an email saying, oh, uh, we've just checked our regulations and we found you got to do this. Okay, and so Paul, just to be clear, anytime there might be some sort of an issue like this, maybe anytime that the rendering plant nearby a dairy shuts down and they need to do an emergency composting, they should apply with a notice of intent. And then whenever the composting activity is over, they file a notice of termination. It's for every separate event. Yes, uh, okay. and it looks like this is going to be the case going forward. Uh, you know, this is the first time that they've required this uh, in this event, and this uh, emergency disposal permit has been available for a few years, and they've never, uh, you know, looked at it or thought of it, and now they've thought of it, and they say this is going to be the requirement going forward. Okay. But again, before dairymen submit that notice of intent, I would encourage them to talk to me, um, you know, really get the details of it, and, and really try the landfilling option. Uh, because I think most folks are going to want to avoid that. Uh, you know, it's just, um, sure. you know, another uh, paperwork nightmare that they've got to deal with. Um, and so if, if you could do something else that doesn't put you in that situation, um, I think that's going to be a better choice. But if you want to talk about your options, again, I always encourage members to call me, but this is one of those where I think they should call me before uh, they Maybe. fill out that notice of intent and see what their options are. Well, since we, we've um, talked a little about the landfill option, and that seems to be the best option because it's one less paper trail that dairymen have to worry about. Can you um, give us an update on what landfills are available for this? Is it any landfills? You know, how does that work? Yeah, so in the CDQAP advisory, there is a list of landfills. Uh, some of them only take material from your specific county. Um, for example, the landfill in Stanislaus County only takes material from Stanislaus County. They wouldn't take it from neighboring counties, but there are others that uh, do take uh, materials from a variety of counties. So that list spells that out. If you're in a certain county, it tells you, um, you know, what's your nearest landfill and what kind of the, the contact is and what their rules for bringing material to them are. So uh, looking at the advisory in detail um, and finding the nearest landfill, which which may not be in your county, like Tulare County, for example, uh, that landfill does not want fresh uh, carcasses. So um, a landfill in Kings County is probably going to be the best option for the folks in Tulare County. So there is a list of landfills and kind of the contact information and the rules for um, taking materials to that landfill uh, that producers can look at and pick their best option. Uh, this week, I also spoke with Doug Pattison of the Central Valley Regional Water Quality Control Board about how dairies could avoid this additional permit. And I mentioned, you know, I, I would be uh, encouraging our members to go to the landfill option. Uh, and he mentioned that there's another option, and that is if a dairy puts animals in a compost pile, uh, but then removes those animals to the landfill before the 30 days uh, that are required to file the notice of intent, that they don't need to apply for that. So, you know, if a dairy producer's already put animals in a compost pile, and he's like, hey, I really don't want to deal with this, if it's possible, um, I know it's going to be messy, but if it's possible and a dairy producer could move those animals to a landfill, uh, since it was only last week that they were put in there, you can actually avoid uh, that permitting thing. It's important to know going forward, um, you know, that th that permit is a requirement. Uh, and for this time, you know, maybe there's a, a messy way to kind of take care of it and still stay out of that. Um, 
Western United has been working on this issue uh, and we will continue to work on this issue to clarify and streamline this process in an emergency. Uh, it's still quite difficult uh, with uh, dealing with CDFA and the individual counties and working with them through these issues and what their individual options are, but we're trying to streamline that. I wanted to make our members aware of this issue, especially the new permit requirement by the Water Board. And again, members can always call me if they have any questions on this or any other environmental issues, but um, especially if they're looking at, you know, filling out that notice of intent, um, I really would ask that they uh, reach out to me uh, at the office and uh, or by email and, um, you know, ask me any questions to fully understand this option. Great. And Paul, could you just give us your contact information real quick for members, your email address? Sure. Uh, my email address is my first name, Paul, P-A-U-L at wudairies.com. Okay. And we'll um, link that in the show notes as well. So members can always email Paul with questions or just give our office a call at 209-527-6453. Thanks so much, Paul, for this important update. I think Sometimes we don't plan on having this kind of content in the show, but it, it's really a way to get timely information out to our producers. So we really appreciate you taking the time today to let us know about this. And it's, it's a really important issue. Exactly. I appreciate the opportunity and I think it is a good vehicle to get information out to our members. So great. Well, thanks People again, listen. Paul. Thank you. And um, we're going to jump right into our interview with PG&E's Chris Giovanni and Christine Forrester. So we'll jump right in with that. All right, well, we're excited to be here today. We have some special guests from PG&E. We have Chris DiGiovanni, who's the manager of gas strategy, policy and development. And we also have Christine Forster, who's the manager for ag and food processing industry for PG&E. And maybe we'll start with just some introductions and a brief bit about yourself. Chris, would you mind kicking that off for us? Sure, thank you, Darby. Um, so I've been uh, with PG&E about 11 years now. Um, I spent time on both the electric and the gas side of the business. Uh, on the electric side, I did a lot of renewable energy procurement through the various uh, procurement programs that we run. And now on the gas side, I've been uh, heavily involved in forward-looking gas strategy efforts around decarbonization and uh, more specifically involved with uh, biomethane projects, uh, both on the regulatory side and helping to get uh, these uh, renewable gas projects interconnected onto our system. Great, we're really excited that you're here today with us. And Christine, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role with PG&E as well? Thanks, Darby. Um, yeah, I've been with PG&E for 17 years. Um, I started off in our meter reading department in Kern County. Uh, we were the first, as many know, Kern County to go through the smart meter transition. So I led the team of meter reading through that transition and kickoff. And from there, I spent a little time in our service planning department and then made my way over to account services, where I kind of came up through as an account manager and now managing the team that now serves our ag and food processing segment. And well, great. Thank you again both so much for being here today with us. Thank you guys for joining us today and thank you for your continued partnership with Western. We really appreciate working with PG&E. And um, just to kick it off, PG&E, we understand, has a tradition um, that, of course, first of all, safety is always number one with PG&E. And the tradition is that you start every meeting with a safety message. So in that spirit, Christine, I'm wondering if you could start us off today with a safety message. Yeah, I'd love to, and you're absolutely right. Safety is number one here at PG&E. Um, so for today, I wanted to kick it off relevant to our topics of discussion uh, with 811, call before you dig. Um, this really is relevant for our dairy industry, especially as we get into digesters and the installation and construction there, but also in their normal everyday routine of operations of, of their dairies um, and even at their homes. So we want to, we ask all customers to call before you dig, 811. Um, the beauty of 811 is that you can also, this is also the same number that you call if you're in Edison's territory or San Diego Power and Electric. So I know the industry, the dairy industry itself um, covers all utilities in the state of California. So whether you're PG&E, Edison, San Diego Power and Electric, or maybe one of our other municipalities, um, just please call 811 before you dig. Um, I want to kind of take that a little bit further for our dairy industry as they're developing these digesters and really expanding their operation. 
at PG&E and all the other utilities, we do um, a lot around our pipeline safety. So we wanna encourage our dairy customers to do the same as they start to install these digesters and really in, uh, start to own and operate their own pipelines on their dairies as it pertains to the digesters. So um, your contractors, your digester contractors should be sharing safety messages and tellboards and, and documentation for the dairy owner and for the employees of the dairy um, to continue operations as they complete the digester. Um, it should be tellboards and and uh, materials that you can post uh, that you can share with their with their employees. And if the contractors aren't or they haven't seen it, I definitely encourage them to ask their dairy digesters for this material because they definitely have them. Um, so yeah, eight one one call before you dig. Um, whether you're on your property or or not on your property, and as it relates to the digester itself or any other utility, um, you never know what's in the ground, and we want our customers to be safe. Great. Thank you so much for that. And um, I think later on in the episode, we'll talk a little bit more about other safety issues that may be arising this fall or, you know, have in the past. And so we'll we'll continue that theme. Okay. Um, well, I'll just kick it off with a little bit, a few more other items, um, if you don't mind, that are important to the safety for dairies as they install these digesters. Again, back to the materials that the company should be providing in addition to 811. Um, that they should be, if they smell any gas, um, they should leave the area immediately and then call the emergency services. Um, the methane is highly, um, flam extremely flammable, flammable. So we want to be cognizant of that as we're operating on the dairy and in, in the area. So um, those are probably the biggest um, two items I would call out. If you smell um, gas, um, leave the area immediately and then call the appropriate emergency services and your contractor and, and utility. Um, and then I would um, encourage the employees share that same message with all of their employees on on the dairy as they operate. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty big, pretty big um, transition for dairies that haven't had methane digesters on their property. Just kind of getting in the habit of of keeping an extra eye out and extra, I guess, nose out for those things that may be different. So great, great tips. Thanks, Christine. So one very popular topic in the dairy industry these days is like we just talked about greenhouse gas reductions and many dairies are moving to digester technologies to reduce those methane emissions. We've seen a huge shift to that in the industry in the past few years and we're going to talk to Chris now and he's going to share with us a little bit about PG&E's work kind of in this arena. Um, as we get started, maybe we can just break it down a little bit and talk about really what is biomethane? So, um, so biomethane really is like natural gas, except it comes from renewable sources. Uh, major sources include landfills and dairies. And um, when the organic waste from these sources decomposes without oxygen, it creates biogas. And this biogas can then be processed into biomethane and made safe for injection into the uh, pipeline system. Great, and how does that injection really help with our, our methane reductions overall? So, you know, as we're all well aware, you know, raw methane from these sources is a major source of uh, greenhouse gases and capturing it as biomethane and injecting it into the pipelines can reduce these greenhouse gases and help California really meet uh, its environmental goals. Um, you know, California does have very aggressive GHG emission retargets, uh, reduction targets, um, and it really is gonna take a portfolio approach to, to get there and methane capture into renewable natural gas needs to play a key role in this effort. So as we're looking at, you know, making moves on dairies, trying to be more sustainable and really trying to get these methane reductions, are there financial incentives that are available for biomethane producers? There are, you know, there's um, some federal and state systems of, of tradable credits um, for the production of and use of this renewable natural gas. Um, right now, kind of the, the most lucrative credits out there are the LCFS credits. Um, that's the main incentive right now. Uh, each source of raw methane that is processed into pipeline quality biomethane for use as, as transportation fuel, um, you know, has, has different scores um, based on its GHG reduction value. This credit can't fluctuate based on market demand, but it typically exceeds the market value of traditional natural gas, you know, by a pretty significant margin. So really it's the transportation market um, right now that that's driving, um, you know, a lot of the renewable, the, the direction of where a lot of the renewable gas is going right now. 
That's great. I feel like you hear a lot of this kind of bouncing around in what we like to call in the industry coffee shop talk. And <laughs> so it's nice to kind of have it laid out, you know, in a in a more broad and kind of a more just better explained way. I think there tends to be a little bit of, I know I hear some rumors about credits and all this kind of stuff. And so I think it's something that a lot of producers are, are hopefully starting to really take advantage of. Um, can you tell me about the biomethane OIR? Sure. Um, so this was uh, launched by the CPUC um, as a rulemaking back in 2013. And there are really, from, from my perspective, three main objectives to this, uh, this rulemaking. Um, first, to spur development of renewable natural gas. Secondly, to streamline the interconnection process for biomethane developers. And third, to really establish a, a uniform set of rules and gas quality requirements and contracts you know that that the developers will be using um, the the rulemaking has you know broken out into four phases. Um, phase one, um, you know, really kind of dealt with pipeline injection standards and and specifically, you know, how do you um, identify and mitigate seventeen constituents of concern that can potentially be found in biomethane. So how do you get get those cleaned up before that gets injected into the pipeline system? Um, it also set a, an injection standard of 0.1% for hydrogen. And, um, you know, these standards are to be revised every five years. In fact, we're, we're going through a process right now for kind of the, the first five-year revision of that. So that was phase one, again, dealing with injection standards. Phase two of the rulemaking adopted a $40 million biomethane incentive program. And this really helps developers to offset some of the costs to interconnect their projects. Um, in, in, phase, uh, in, in a further phase, there was an incentive reservation system put in place um, you know, for this incentive program. Um, any of the projects that you know, had been in development or were in a, a certain phase of development you know, were able to submit applications um, earlier this year, beginning of February, um, in order to kind of get in the queue for that. So, that was phase two, the, the incentive program. Phase three is where the bulk of the work has been done over the last year and a half or so. And this is to really develop a standard renewable gas tariff and a standard renewable gas interconnection and operating agreement amongst all the gas utilities in the state of California. And this is really to give the developers consistency across, no matter whether they're dealing with PG&E or SoCal Gas or, you know, Southwest or San Diego Gas and Electric. Um, you know, they they'll they'll now be able to go through the exact same process. Um, so back in November, we filed the uh, the interconnection tariff, um, and uh, a proposed decision was was put out about a month ago. And as we record this on Wednesday, the 26th, it's due to get uh, voted out tomorrow um, at, at the CPUC. Um, and then, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, back in May, we filed the joint interconnection and operating agreement. Um, have not received a PD on that yet. But now that we've kind of worked through the tariff, uh, that should be coming shortly. So that was phase three. Phase four just opened um, in November, really addresses two issues. Um, the, the first of which is to develop some standards uh, for injection of renewable hydrogen into the gas pipelines. And the, uh, the second is the implementation of SB 1440, which considers a, a biomethane procurement target for core customers. Great. Well, there's surely no shortage of things going on and lots of moving pieces, it sounds like. And as we look at some of these moving pieces, could you kind of explain to us what a typical, really just a typical biomethane facility would look like or what that configuration would be? Sure. Um, so there's really, you know, from my view, three major components for a typical facility. Um, you've got the developer facilities, you have the utility receipt station, and then on the back end, you've got the, the utility facilities. So all components upstream of the utility receipt station are owned and operated by the project um, and or the developer of the project. And so just to kind of break out what that is, so you know you have waste from a cow that would be run through an anaerobic digester. The output from that would be run through a gas processing unit. That gas processing unit, um, the output there then goes into a gas compressor and the, the gas compressor um, would likely have an interconnecting pipeline that would deliver, you know, that gas to the utility receipt point station. 
And so um, again, the, the project and or the developer would own that entire process. And then once it reach, reaches the utility receipt point station, there's really kind of two components there. There's gas quality testing. You know, we need to make sure that all of those constituents of concern have been removed from the gas. And we really do, again, need to ensure that the gas is pipeline quality um, for safe, injected, uh, safe injection into the system. And then the second component is the utility gas meter. And this allows us to, to measure the volume of gas being injected into the pipeline. So that's uh, the second component, the receipt station. And then, you know, from there, it get, goes into utility facilities. Um, from the receipt point station, the gas is injected into our pipeline, either directly or via, you know, another um, interconnecting pipeline between the, the station and our pipeline. Great. So when we're talking about all of these types of interconnecting pieces, what really is the typical interconnection process and how long does that take or what does the timeline look like? Yeah, and that, that's an important, you know, component right now, especially for some of the, you know, the dairies out there that are considering um, digesters and considering, um, you know, producing gas to put in the system. It's really important to kind of know what that timeline looks like. And so, you know, there are really kind of three main phases to this process. The first is the initial feasibility study. The second phase is design scope and preliminary estimate. And then the third phase is the actual construction and interconnection into the pipeline. So I'll kind of break that down a little bit. Um, the first phase being the initial feasibility study that can take up to three weeks. The developer will provide PG&E information about the project really high level. Where's the project located? What's the supply source? What's the estimated volume of gas that they plan on injecting into this system? We then take a look at that, look at our um, gas pipelines nearby and, and find out, you know, hey, is do we have a transmission pipeline nearby, a distribution pipeline? Um, what can handle the, the anticipated volume of gas? Um, and, you know, and, and that lets us know at a high level whether we're able to accept that anticipated supply or not. And so, you know, once everything looks good there, we move into the second phase, which is the design scope and preliminary estimate. This phase can take up to 20 weeks. Um, you know, we send a project team with engineers uh, and, and a project planner out to the site. They'll review the most efficient and safest route to, to make the pipeline connection. And then from there, they'll develop a preliminary cost estimate for the interconnection. And again, I want to emphasize this is preliminary, you know, more detailed uh, cost estimates will be provided when we get into the next phase, um, which is the final phase um, that leads into the uh, the interconnection of the project to the pipeline. And this final phase can take anywhere from 12 to 24 months. Um, and again, in this phase, we do detailed engineering. We finalize the project design, provide more detailed cost estimates. And then once that is done, um, you know, we'll we'll uh, move forward, mobilize for construction and uh, get that project to a state where it can uh, start uh, injecting gas into the system. Great. And as we're kind of looking at, you know, penciling all of this out, how much does it typically cost to interconnect a project? So each facility is different, um, but in general, um, you know, there's no charge for the initial feasibility study that, you know, as I mentioned a few uh, minutes ago, this is the phase that can take up to three weeks and it's really just a high level desktop review of the project. So again, no charge there. In order to get into the second phase, um, PG&E needs a $50,000 deposit, and this allows us to start um, doing the design scope and to prepare a preliminary estimate for the facility. From there, we get into phase three, and this is where more detailed design and engineering takes place. Again, this leads to the start of construction. Um, kind of a couple of components here. The, the receipt station and injection into the gas system can cost north of $2 million. And if there is any interconnecting pipe required between the gas system and the receipt station, typical cost is around five, $5 million per mile of pipe. And that's quite a quite a hefty chunk. Um, does the dairy owner need to really think that they're going to do all this on their own or are there developers who can kind of help them through this process? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And, and typically a dairy owner will work with a developer. Um, you know, these developers are, are very well versed in this process. Um, you know, developers like Moss Energy or CalBio, Bennett Environmental, they're really there to, to help the, um, those dairies uh, through the process and, and, and to get these projects built and online. 
Great. And if if a dairy producer is thinking that this could be something he's interested in for his operation or he really just or she really just wants to find out more, where can they go for more information? So two spots. Um, you can go to our webpage, www.pge.com slash biomethane. Um, secondarily, if you've got more direct or specific questions about your facilities, you can send an email to biomethane at pge.com. Great. And just to note for our listeners that we will link that website address and that email in the show notes. Awesome. Well, thanks, Chris, for all that information. Um, we're going to move into a little bit away from the biomethane topic and um, chat with Christine about the wealth of other programs that PG&E offers. And first of all, Christine, um, before we got get into too much to the other programs, we also wanted to talk a little bit about the public safety power shutoffs, um, how that differs from other emergency unplanned power outages, and how dairies can work to have a prevention or preparation plan for those types of events. So maybe we can just start with the the public safety power shutoffs and what that means for, you know, businesses like dairies and residents in the state. Yeah, absolutely, Melissa. Thank you. So um, our public safety power shutoff program is definitely coming up. We also coined that. We like acronyms here at pg e so we call it PSPS. So you'll hear that a lot, too. Um, but it is relevant. We are coming up on what we refer to as our PSPS season as it relates to the fire season in the state of California. Um, so we have um, continued to construct and implement um, a whole host of mitigation plans and process improvements to continue our improvement on our PSPS plan and process. Um, but ultimately what the what the this program is at, a, at, at its core is that when weather conditions are right that are triggered between um, wind speed, temperature, the amount of fuel, um, lack of humidity, um, we, when those conditions are right, we can institute a public safety power shutoff. Um, and what that is, is we're shutting down the power proactively to prevent further um, damages um, or challenges created by the fire that could be um, impacting our, our utility lines across the state. So the other utilities have similar programs as well. It's mandated by the CPC, so it's not unique to pg e Again, it is definitely um, with our partners at Edison and San Diego Power and Electric as well. And so um, under the public safety power shutoff program, we've been working um, to increase our, to improve our notification process. And that can be done through a variety of ways. Um, if our dairy customers are working specifically with an account manager, they've probably already been contacted and contacted numerous times to update their contact information on who they would want um, to receive the notification in the event that we have to institute a public safety power shutoff. Additionally, if they're not working with an account manager, that's okay. It's not a mandatory um, item that they have to work with an account manager. They can go online and update their public safety power shutoff contact information, and they can also call our call centers and update that information as well. And that is extended not just for our dairy customers, but to your point, all customers, uh, residential and non-residential. So we we really encourage and want everybody to update that contact information um, for these events. That That is definitely one step in the planning process as we come up to PSPS season. The other item that is equally or more important for our customers, again, really all customers, residential dairy owners, other customers, um, to have a plan. We really want to encourage our customers to have an emergency plan in case of a fire, in case of a public safety power shutoff. Um, that emergency plan should include um, the safety and well-being of their family, um, first and foremost. Um, second, if it's an operational um, need such as a dairy, have a plan. If you have a generator, make sure you're maintaining that generator, checking it um, that it'll run when needed. Make sure you have a fuel plan. Um, make sure you have a backup fuel plan. So. As we roll through these events, they can last a long time. It, it may be a couple hours. It could be a week. Um, and so having the generator full is one, one step. An additional step is where are you going to get fuel when the generator runs out um, to keep your operation running? Specifically, as we all know here, um, the refrigeration component and the cooling of the cows. We all like happy cows in California that definitely produces more milk for all of us. And so we want to keep those those cows happy. And we want to keep our product um, fresh and healthy as well. So um, having that plan um, for those events that are coming up um, that we really expect to roll through uh, any time coming really in September, if I'm being uh, fair, 
through the end of October is really the prime season that we, again, as it completely directly relates to our fire season in California. So um, have your emergency plan for your family, have your operational plan in place for your for your dairy um, generator, fuel, um, and any other, you know, contacts in case, in, you know, of an emergency, contractors, electricians, things like that. Um, so that's really PSPS in, in a nutshell. Um, but a lot of those items really carry over into what we want to do emergency planning just for unplanned outages. And so when we talk about unplanned outages, what is an unplanned outage, right? Well, an unplanned outage could be, um, it could be a carpool. That's what we like to call it when we have unfortunate accidents on the roadway and a vehicle has, has struck our pole and taken out power. It could be caused by birds. We love our bird friends, but they do sometimes get in the way of our lines um, and our equipment up on those poles. And it could be also anything just as uh, equipment failure. We all know that um, all of our equipment is mechanical in nature and it will tend to fail every now and then. So those are what we call our unplanned outages. And those same items that I referred to in a PSPS planning should really cross over to our unplanned outages. We don't have control of the roadways, unfortunately, and you could lose power at any moment in time. And you wanna have a plan. You wanna be prepared for that. Um, half of that is the the mental part of that. So you're not, you know, scrambling at the last minute, worried about the cows, worried about the melt cooling um, and all of that. So, um, so we really, emergency planning is just a really key component when we talk about overall energy management uh, for all of our customers. Um, we have another, another item that we'll talk about from an unplanned outage perspective. Um, and kind of to Chris's point, as we're recording this on, on on the 26th of August, um, recently the state went through a rolling blackout uh, period. And that was new to us that had been in the state for a while. It's been about 20 years since we experienced all of that. And this was something that we were directed as our utilities and our partners at Edison and San Diego Power and Electric that um, ISO, which is our independent system operator, they manage the grid for California. And what they're doing is they're managing the long and the short of it is the supply and the demand that every Californian needs for electricity. And what happened um, recently is that our supply and our demand uh, got really close to each other. And in some cases, um, our, our demand exceeded our supply. And we had to institute, we were um, asked actually, um, directed by the ICE, by California independent system operators to uh, roll into these rolling blackouts. And that again was with Edison and San Diego Power and Electric as well little bit different scenario than our PSPS events, than our unplanned outages with our birds and our coal car poles and our equipment failure. But the moral of the story is, for the planning perspective is exactly the same. So um, really back to talking about PSPS and contacts, we really want our customers to update their contact information, again, through a variety of ways, through our account managers, through online tools on our website, through our call centers, um, and then have your plan in place. Again, first and foremost, your safety and well-being for your family, and then operationally, what's your emergency plan that leads into fuel and generation and electricians and contractors, and how are we going to keep the dairy you know, operating under these conditions? Um, so we're gonna continue to improve our processes for our notification from PSPS and what we experienced recently with our plan of rolling blackouts. Um, and so that we'll continue to seek feedback and look for places that we can improve that process for all of our customers. Um, but in the meantime, really want to encourage just the, the contact updates and, and the planning for these events that um, are really unforeseen for all of us. Definitely. As a, a, a residential client of PG&E and also um, for our family business, I'd have to say you guys are really good about notification. You almost have to be trying not to find out what's going on. Um, we get I get text messages, emails, um, sometimes a robocall, and occasionally a mailer with information. So it's really um, great how you guys work and go above and beyond to notify your customers and just we'll just continue to encourage producers. If you're not getting those notifications for whatever reason, let's go in and make sure you're contact info is updated and that your account manager knows your situation. And then Christine, can you just um, update us? Is there a way that if we want to work with someone at PG&E to help us with our emergency plan, do you have folks that are able to help out dairy producers who might have an extra energy need like fans? Um, for example, during the rolling blackouts last week, it was also 110 degrees in the Central Valley where a lot of our dairies are. So do you have uh, someone on staff that could kind of help strategize about how to keep the cows cool in an event like that? 
Yeah, so um, our account management team um, throughout the territory from top to bottom, from Reading to Bakersfield to Los Padres to Santa Cruz, um, our account managers, um, one of the benefits that we have with how we are set up um, as a segment is they serve all ag and food processing. Um, and so they they have a lot of industry knowledge, they have a lot of contacts um, in the industry, and they can absolutely, that's the starting point if if a dairy producer needs some help and wants to, you know, some guidance on kind of where should I start, we have a whole host of options that our account managers can start working with their customers. We want to be engaged with um, our dairy producers, just like any customer that we have. We want to dive deeper into those relationships and support them across the board in energy management. So not just energy efficiency, not just rate analysis, but how can we come to them and help them and support them as they operate their dairy. So we have safety, as we talked about early on when we kicked off our podcast um, today, is number one. So we have a whole host of safety uh, documents and guidance and references that we can provide. And then if there's something missing, we want to know. We'll go out and we'll try to find it. We'll seek out, and we're not we're not a complete expert as our dairymen are experts, but we will seek out um, those partners and those industry partners that can fill in the gaps where maybe we haven't found yet. So um, the account manager um, ideally should be viewed as a, as a key partner um, for our dairy customers, not just our dairy customers, but all of our customers. Well, great. That's good good news and a little comforting in times like this where things can just be a little uncertain to have to have someone there helping us with the planning. Um, so another thing PG&E has been working on, um, you guys have put a lot of time and energy into restructuring how your time of use services are set up and how the tiers work. And I've had a lot of dairy questions. In fact, I sat on a PG&E webinar earlier this summer as to what that's going to look like in the coming years. So could you talk, Christine, a little bit to that, those changes to your time of use system? Yeah, absolutely. And yes, that's a big change coming down for our dairy producers and all of our customers, all of our non-residential customers. And so, so our time of use periods are shifting. Um, they were historically what we call now legacy time of use periods, and they have been for 25 to 30 years. They've been Monday through Friday, May through October, 12 to 6, and that's been our peak time. Um, they are switching to later in the day to line up better with what our supply and demand is actually for the grid, for the independent system operator, and the CPUC for the state of California. Um, so it's a big change for our customers. Um, so we have, we've already, to your point, uh, we've hosted a, a handful of webinars. To be completely frank, we were, we had a robust plan to be out in the communities, in-person workshops with our ag and food processing customers, um, including dairy producers, um, and then COVID hit, right? <laughs> so um, we had to change our strategy from an in-person touch um, and conversation and outreach to a virtual mode. And so um, we're just really kicking that off. We did do some webinars in April and May um, we're going to pick up again here in September with another uh, rates webinar. And then we're going to pick up, we've decided to skip um, the, again, those key PSPS months that we were referencing early, earlier. And so we're going to pick up in November again with our webinars and really do our outreach strategy, inviting all of our ag customers and food processing customers again, which is including of our dairy producers. We're going to leverage our industry partners and associations to really get the word out because we want to help our customers in this change. Um, so, as I mentioned before, the peak times were, were May through October, Monday through Friday, 12 to 6. It's shifting later in, in the day um, to a 5 to 8. Um, there's some other key changes where we have peak year-round now. We do have summertime pricing that comes into play for a shorter period. Um, it's not the six months as it is today. Um, but probably the key points I would call out for the time of use is that we do have peak period now um, every day, all year round, 365 days. That's a key change from our legacy time of use periods. Um, and we have less, we've consolidated our rate options. Um, if you're familiar and for those that aren't, we have, gosh, over six or seven different rate structures and options for our customers. So through our feedback and our engagement with the industry, we heard that we wanted it, you guys wanted it simpler. Um, so we've consolidated down to three rate structures. Um, and so we want to encourage our customers if they're not engaged with an account manager, they haven't joined a webinar, um, they haven't read the material, we encourage them to, to get on that now, sooner than later. So these changes are gonna start in March of 2021. So March 2021 is going to be a busy time for all of our customers. Um, one of the other key changes 
historically commercial, our commercial rates um, and our ag rates have the same peak period moving forward in the new time of use structure. Um, they will have different. So it is going to be a challenge. Again, we're well aware of this challenge for our ag customers and including their dairy producers. But if they're, they have ag rates, which you'll know by your billing or um, in looking at your billing statements or and you have commercial rates, your time of use periods are going to be slightly different. Um, and so we really want to work through those changes um, with all of our customers. So in March of 2021, our ag and commercial rates will begin to transition from our legacy time of use to our new time of use periods. Additionally, we've done this for many, many years and many folks probably don't notice that it goes unnoticed. It's a very small population, but we also still have some customers out there on what we call our flat rates um, for very for various reasons. And so in March of 2021, we'll also be transitioning the next group of customers that have a flat rate and then are not on time of use. They'll transition. Um, and then we're waiting some key decisions from the from the commission on peak day pricing. So again, peak day pricing is not new to our customers. Um, but we're looking to modify that program some and, and make some changes that we think um, our customers will benefit from. We are waiting for the, the commission to approve that. So pending that decision, um, those changes could start to be implemented in March of 2021 as well. Now, I want to really call out that these are non-residential changes that I'm referencing. So this is, this is our ag customers and our commercial. This is not the rate structure on your home. Now, with that said, your rate structure on your home is changing and will change also, but it's a different notification process, different letters, um, some different tools and options. Um, and again, your account manager can help you work through those changes. The call center can help you work through those changes. We have some self-serve tools online because there's a lot of changes. <laughs> um, if 2020 hasn't taught us anything, hopefully it's taught us all that change can come very quickly. Um, and so we, we are here to help PG&E wants to help our customers through these changes um, because there are our ad customers and our dairy producers have some options. So there are better rates than others. Um, and it does make a difference on how you're operating in the size of the load or the size of the well um, that you have that you could have. You want to make sure you're on the best rate um, and we can work through that with our self-serve tools, with our call centers and our account reps. So a lot on time of use, um, but Join. We'll get those webinars out. Um, we'll again look for your Farm Bureau, look for your other associations. I know you guys have been a key partner for us, and so we'll definitely get that information for you to distribute to customers. We want to hear from our customers, our dairy producers. We want to support them through this change. So a lots on time of use coming. Absolutely. And I think it's probably a really good change. I think, you know, there's going to be some adaptations, but as you mentioned in 2020, we're all getting used to making quick adaptations. So one last thing to touch on that kind of dovetails nicely with the changes coming to time of use are um, the resources PG&E has available for energy management. And so PG&E will help customers with an energy audit, if I'm correct. And that may be a way to kind of take a look at the new time of use regulations in relation to your facility and what may work best for you. Correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, and energy efficiency is just one component of really a, a solid holistic energy management plan. So we want to really at the core, we want to make sure our customers understand the rates that they're on, right? That's the everyday, that's the billing, that's the pricing point. We all understand that and recognize that. Once you have a good foundation in your data and your energy, and you understand when you're using your energy, we can really move that conversation into energy efficiency. And we can look for those opportunities. Um, and we have incentives and rebates for those um, items that are identified, it can be identified through an energy audit. We have our PG&E staff and engineers um, that can help that. We have partnered with key um, implementers through the CPUC and through our energy efficiency program. So we could bring in various um, companies such as um, TRC, which was formerly Lockheed Martin. We have Clear Results. We have a whole host of different implementers that help PG&E, the engineers and the account managers identify energy efficiency at their at their dairy. So again, energy efficiency is one component. So out of that audit, out of that discussion, out of that review, we also want to look at, so we understand our energy. We know when we're using it and how we're using it. Can we change out our fans? Is there a more efficient fan we can look at? Do we have VFDs on all of our glycol pumps on our refrigeration system? Um, lighting, have you have you made the switch to LED? You know, most have, but I think there's still a lot out there that could be done. Um, 
the refrigeration system can have other efficiencies from a water cool to air cool to variable frequency drive. So there's a whole host of things that you can do from an energy efficiency perspective. We recognize that the dairy operation also usually has wells for their supporting to for their crops um, to support the dairy for their feed program. On the wells, we want to look at the energy, the over the pumping efficiency of that well. We want to see is there an opportunity for a VFD if it makes sense or not. And so the energy efficiency is not just limited to the dairy or the milk barn itself. Uh, we want to extend that to the entire operation. Um, wherever the feedlot may be, the dairy lagoons for the waste perspective, um, and of course the, the pumping, the water pumping for the water for the crops. Once that's been looked at and we've done energy efficiency options, we want to talk about demand response. So that was definitely a mechanism that we used during the rolling blackouts. Um, we have programs that customers can get paid incentives to voluntarily shed load when needed, which was recently during the rolling blackouts, which helps the overall uh, management of the grid and customers can have a financial benefit to that. So demand response is another area that we want to look at. And then in addition to that, again, we've looked at energy. We know when and how we're using our energy. We've talked about um, energy efficiency items to improve, make sure we've got top-notch equipment running efficiently. We've talked about demand response. So now what about self-gen? And that kind of really relates back to Chris's information in the digesters. That's just one generation option that customers have. So not only does it help their operation be efficient, there's a financial trigger there that the, the dairymen who have chosen to stay in California and operate and continue their legacy, they're definitely looking for those triggers. Um, the self-gen option is not limited to dairy digesters. Um, there's a lot of solar on these dairy farms. We wanna make sure that your solar is maximizing and complementing all of the items that I just mentioned. Um, so there's a whole, and we really look at that from like what we call an integrated demand side management. So we want to have a good holistic energy management plan and pg e here is here to help whether it's folks like chris with the digesters or it's an account manager on my team self-serve options um, bring it all together we are here in california we've all made a conscious decision to stay in california and operate and continue our legacy and we want to work together to make that as beneficial to all Awesome. Well, thanks so much for that wealth of information, Christine. There's so many different options and programs that PG&E offers, and we're glad to be able to alert our members to things that they may not be signed up for, and especially maybe working to get an account manager if they don't already have an existing account manager. I think that's a really valuable asset. Yes, absolutely. And if and if someone's not working with an account manager, they can they can absolutely reach out um, to our call centers, and we will get we will get them. If the if the self serve tools aren't enough, um, and the and the call center you know is not enough, and they're looking for more, all they have to do is call the call center and, and ask to get hooked up with an account manager, and we can certainly make that happen. Great, thank Great. you. Well, as we wrap up here, is there anything else either of you would like to add? So I'll jump in before Chris, and I just really want to bring it back and maybe my closing comments just really drive home safety. Um, again, safety is number one at pg &E. We kicked this podcast off with safety. Um, and 811, I think, is extremely key as it pertains to Chris's information and the digesters being installed currently up and down the Central Valley. So it's, it's a new item for these dairymen. And so just as we've been talking about pipeline safety for years, we want to make sure that the contractors, the digester contractors, and the customers, the dairy producers are working together in their now owner operator um, scenario with their own pipeline. Um, so if they're, I would just encourage any dairy producer listening to this now, if, if you don't know what your safety plan or your guidance materials should be from your, your own pipelines that are now in the ground, um, moving the manure and the waste from the lagoon to the central plant, um, reach out to your digester contractor and ask um, and, and encourage your employees and tell board your employees that before you dig into that ground with a backhoe or a ripper or anything, call your digester company, call the utility, make sure that the ground is safe before you excavate. Chris? Yeah, I'll just, um, you know, just kind of summarize by saying if you're uh, considering a digester to inject uh, pipeline quality gas into the system, um, it is a two plus year process. So, you know, the sooner you get started on that, the sooner we can start working um, with you to to ensure that we can get uh, those uh, projects online safely. 
Well, again, thank you both so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast and really being so open and sharing so much important information um, with our members. Uh, I know that, you know, electricity is obviously such an important part of a dairy and gas and energy in general. So I think everyone could take some time and better understand all the work that you guys do to help support producers. We want to invite you again to please come back anytime you have any new information or updates to share. We're always really happy to have you partner with us. And again, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you guys. Well, as we said earlier, an action-packed episode, and I think it was definitely just that, Darby. I agree. I'm I'm really excited about this one, and I'm honestly excited to listen back to our PG&E interview and kind of pick up a few more things. So I hope our listeners appreciate it as much as we do. For sure. A huge shout out to Annie and Paul, of course, from our staff, and then Chris and Christine from PG&E, and especially to our awesome partner and sponsor, PG&E, for making today's episode possible. Yeah, and if you'd like information on sponsorship, you can reach out to the office at info, I-N-F-O, at wudairies.com or at our office number, which is 209-527-6453. Also remember, if you have questions, comments, or content requests for Darby or I, you could always reach us at our podcast email, which is wud.pod at gmail.com. I'm M-L-E-M-A at wudairies.com. And I'm Darby, D-A-R-B-Y at wudairies.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform. And if you really liked this episode or one of our other ones, share it with a friend. Have a great week, everyone. While Western United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the Western United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies' generous 2020 business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wudairies.com. D-A-I-R-I-E-S dot com.